Do you feel that in a time when we are more connected than ever, we are drifting away from real human connection, especially to ourselves? I do. Hi, I'm Leticia Latino, and I want to invite you to join me and my very inspiring guests in exploring ways to reconnect to your essence, to your definite purpose, to what makes you tick. Are you ready? Hello and welcome to a new episode of Back to Basics, Reconnecting to the Essence of You. I'm with Neil McKinley today. He has spent his adult life studying and practicing embodied meditation. Through this band, he has led events of hundreds of people, both in person and online. He has also been a parent and partner, author, and competitive swim coach. Neil leads two online communities, the Living Meditation Network and the Online Gatherings and hosts the Bringing Meditation to Life podcast. He also mentors individuals wanting to bring meditation and embodiment more fully into their lives. Hello, Neil. Welcome to Back to Basics. Good morning, Leticia. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Well, I'm happy you're here because I know that in so many interviews we do, a lot of people, when I ask them, what makes you tick? And they say meditation. And I know a lot of people think like, yeah, no, that doesn't work for me. I cannot do that. So I'm excited to learn about your journey and also to get some tips about how we can get more people to meditate. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I'm looking forward to that. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Neil. I'm very curious about your young years. And if this was something, you know, at all that you were curious or interested in, what were you passionate about growing up? Well, uh, when I was growing up, I was passionate, I guess, about two things. I was passionate about competitive swimming. Mm-hmm. I was a competitive swimmer. And I was compassionate about music. I've always loved music. And uh, curiously, it was, uh, you know, in some ways, the coming together or those two elements came together to bring me to meditation. You know, first one was music. You know, one of my favorite bands when I was growing up was the Beatles. And I knew that the Beatles meditated. I knew that there was a phase of their life where that was an important part of what they were doing. And that was interesting to me. It was curious to me. It drew my attention. Then I was probably mid to late teens, you know, the peak of my competitive swimming experience. And it happened to be a time in sport where what we now call sports psychology and consider ordinary as sports psychology was becoming more and more part of um, mainstream athletics. And so I was part of a swim team where we tried out things like uh, visualization and progressive relaxation and goal setting things that seem so normal now that were like way out back then. And part of that was, uh, part of that suite of tools was meditation. I was introduced to meditation through competitive swimming. And um, because of that music link, I was like, oh, this is something I want to keep doing. And because it was compelling, um, you know, this was something that I wanted to keep doing. So that was how it was, meditation was introduced into my life, very much part of, uh, you know, kind of these dual passions that were part of my adolescent life. Mm, I I love it. I kind of resonate with you in where there was something very early on that I always liked about, you know, just the concept of quieting the noise and just looking inside that, you know, as I gone on my own journey, sometimes you pick more, you pick less, but there's always been that curiosity. Like I was buying like 
books about meditation, like when I was very young, and then I didn't know my, <laughs> what to do with them, but still. <laughs> so, but so you were a competitive swimmer. So obviously, and then we learned coach. When you had to make that decision in terms of mapping out what you were going to be, and uh, my my purpose always is also to give a glimpse of hope to young people choosing, making big decisions and then fearing that whatever they choose, they're not going to be able to backtrack. I always want to make the point, listen, all these guests had said to do this and then they ended up being that and it's okay, you know? So what did you set up to do when you were becoming, you know, an adult? You know, that's a great question because I've I've never had a clear sense of that, to be honest. I never <laughs> not even now. A, no. Well, now interesting, here I am. I'm, you know, in my mid-50s, and finally there's a sense of, oh yes, this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but for much of the time, it was it was very much like that initial experience with meditation, you know. So I was introduced to meditation. More specifically, it was at like one particular swim meet on one particular weekend. Um, one of our coaches introduced the practice to me. And there was something, it was almost like you were describing a moment ago. There was something just there about it, you know, something that was compelling. It drew my attention. And that's been really the case of my professional life, too. There was something about when I stopped swimming, there was something that felt unfinished there, something that was drawing my attention there. And it drew me onto the pool deck. And for you know 20 years, I was a competitive swim coach mm-hmm. um, following that pull. You know, then I spent 20 years um, exploring a particular style of meditation and teaching within a particular community. And there, that was a similar thing. It was kind of a draw. And now I find myself following a more refined, a more specific form of that draw in the work that I do today. So I'm probably a really bad role model for sitting down and and mapping out what one might become when one grows up, because for me, it's always been following this sense of call or that's compelling or that's interesting or that's simply the direction I need to take my next step in. Mm, I love that. And and I know you're big on, on also that intuition, like what I call that certainty that has been there, right? But that many manifestation into our lives and how we kind of know what's going on. And mm-hmm. I'm sure that there's a connection there for people that meditate. Is it more present that knowingness when we meditate? Uh, I, I wonder like that. Some people call it just to make myself clear, because I know I'm rambling, like that intuitive hits, you know, some people mm-hmm, call it mm-hmm. intuitive hits. So we just call it, I, I kind of knew, but I don't know. And and sometimes I wonder if people that have the practice can identify that better and then pursue it rather than they others that know it, but at the pace we move is so fast that we kind of are very quickly dismissive of that uh, intuitive hit. Yeah, I think you've described it really well. And, you know, it goes by many, many, many names. We can talk about intuition. We can talk about our gut sense. We can talk about divine guidance in the Buddhist tradition. We could talk about inner wisdom or Buddha nature. There are all these different words and phrases that point in the same direction. And it's not any more present in meditators than Mm non-meditators. What the difference is, as you've kind of alluding to, is meditators and, you know, people who follow other, engage other um, practices of this ilk, have developed a bit of a deeper 
more familiar relationship with that. So it's a little bit easier to recognize and a little bit harder to dismiss. So the relationship, I think, in my experience, is strengthened by spiritual practice, by um, meditation particularly. But the fact that it's there, it's there and waiting for all of us in equal measure. Mm-hmm. That is, uh, that, I like that answer. And uh, and so you now you devote yourself to helping people to meditate and you create an online communities and, yeah. you know, you see this day in and day out. I feel, and I think I've read it many times, that there's some sort of either resistance or like, do you find that people that meditate, that there's like two bands, people that meditate, people that don't meditate. I sometimes find like, no, that's not for me. I cannot do that. Like the ones that don't do it can say, that's not my thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, I'm Catholic, so I'm very used to prayer. Like for me, I go to mass and to me that time, which is meditation at the end of the day, is just quieting the noise and looking within. To me, it's the same thing. But during the pandemic, and I've shared this on the show, I finally was able to stick to a meditation practice. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. sometimes it can be 20 minutes, but sometimes it's five minutes. So I found the the recipe to kind of debunk that myth of meditation. And I think a lot of people have that same myth of, I cannot do this. So why don't you enlighten us? Any practical tip, anything that you can tell to people that, again, have that curiosity, but they've said, that's not for me. I'm not good for that. Because I'm I'm a convert (laughs) meditator. I, I now will call it whatever, but I do need that time during the day and usually before I turn on my computer, as soon as I get to my office, like finding the right time to do it has been crucial in for me to stick to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think there's lots of, you know, tips and pointers that can be offered to kind of help us get over that hump of, you know, I can't meditate. The main one in my mind is really the ideas, the beliefs, the opinions, the frameworks, the expectations that we bring to the practice when we start. So a lot of times, if you know one thinks about meditation, the image that will come to mind is someone or a group of people sitting in a quiet room, being very quiet and not moving. And a lot of people will look at that and think, understandably so. Yeah, that's not me. I can't sit still. You know, my mind is all over the place. I'm not like that, you know, very Zen Buddha person sitting in that room. So meditation's not my thing. And so one of the things I think is really helpful to understand is just because people are sitting still and in quotes meditating doesn't mean that that's what their internal experience is like. I often think that we should have like electrodes attached to our, our our skull and screens over our head as meditators. So that when someone comes into the room, they see that a third of us are actually, um, you know, sitting there quietly. A third of us are drifting off to sleep and a third of us can't stop singing Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven or something, you know, that... The experience that we encounter when we meditate is really wide-ranging, and it encompasses the fullness of our humanity. And a lot of times that experience is of uh, drowsiness, which a lot of people say they encounter, or of that wild mind that just won't stop. And that doesn't mean that meditation is not for you. That is just the kind of thing that we encounter when we meditate sometimes. We also encounter this sense of stillness and quiet, certainly. But we also encounter that drowsiness. We also encounter that 
wild-mindedness. And so the first thing I try to encourage people to understand is like meditation really is about just coming as you are. Is your mind settled? Great. Is your mind wild? Great. Is your mind sleepy? Great. That's what we're going to work with. So that we kind of undermine or perforate those expectations of what meditation should be and what meditation should look like. Mm, I really like that. And it's very helpful because I think when people explain it like that, that everything is accepted and the concept of this is what it is, you know, and, and accept what is complete rather than, oh, this should be, I need to be sitting down. I need to be in this posture. I need to, I, I think that people get put off by that. And so yes. that, that concept that you bring, bring as you are and then see what happens. And I think there's many good meditation teachers. And of course, I'll share your web page as well. But I think we need more of more of you guys to to like convince us that, OK, I can tackle on this. And, and you know, I find that sometimes I invite friends to meditation and they say, no, that's not, you know, some of those that are very spiritual. They think they're betraying their religion, which is to me is crazy. So I started to call it more like a centering practice and, mm -hmm. you know, finding other names, which I think it also applies, uh, whatever works, but the, to, to give you that you time with, you yeah. know, the inner self. And I think that's a good point. You know, you're, you're kind of pointing in a really rich direction, you know, finding other names for the practice, you know, names that allow us to relax and settle into it. Uh, the other thing that I think is really worth noting is finding other languages, um, by which I mean, there's a lot of people out there teaching meditation these days. And, um, you know, they're using different languages, different vocabularies to help us engage the practice. And so explore and experiment, go grocery shopping and find a language, a presentation that resonates in your life. So for example, there's a lot of people who are teaching meditation from a science point of view these days, using the language of science. There's a lot of people who are using the language of sport, going back to my history. There's a lot of people who use the language of Buddhism. One of the things I try to do is use everyday language, ordinary language of grocery, you know, stores and kitchen sinks and so on and so forth. And so, you know, one of the things I often encourage people to do is go out and explore and find the language, the vocabulary that resonates for you. Because certainly different languages are and different vocabularies are going to have different effects on different people. So, for instance, I'm quite a fan of meditation. I like meditation. My mind does not work in a scientific way, though. And so if you start talking to me about meditation from the perspective of science, it's not going to go very far. Mm -hmm. Another yes. person is going to be totally different. But start talking to me about science or meditation from the perspective of everyday life or the perspective of Buddhism. And, you know, I'm right there with you. So, yeah. you know, find the language, the vocabulary that opens the practice up for you as opposed to, you know, kind of closing it off. Mm, yeah, that, and you're totally right. I always say, and I don't want to go back to the Catholic group, but it's like finding a priest that you like. Like people yeah. say, I don't like too much because I don't like the priest. Yeah, but there are so many priests. It's only a matter of finding that one that has the way of getting to you that yeah. way you need it. It's not like all priests are great. All doctors are not great. Nobody, you don't have any <laughs> job description where everybody's perfect at what they do, right? So, very much yeah and so so i totally agree and to your point i've had guests on the show that are very scientific they are neurosurgeon neurologic but are all for meditation as well 
And so I had an episode where I say, okay, this is the episode where I had all the non-believers. I'm going to send them to this episode because he had fact after fact of how the meditating is good for your brain and the neurons and everything. Like he explained it in such a scientific way mm-hmm. that to me was was very interesting because I had never heard like, while well, I've heard the wave more from the spiritual side from what he was fact after fact, I was like, okay, all my non-believers are going to be convinced <laughs> uh, with this episode because you also see that it's proven that all these energies in our brain, they happen, they can be measured. Mm-hmm. And when you meditate, there's, you know, proof that your brain expands, that you create space into those connections that that are made. And so that's definitely something to look into, as you would very well say, that if you don't like this language of this teacher, of the, then find another one, because for sure there's something out there that will resonate. Yeah. And, you know, so too with talking, you know, t- just talking about the facts of meditation, there are different ways of presenting and articulating the facts. We could call it the benefits of meditation, which is, again, it's going to speak to different people in different ways, which I think is really important. And, you know, that's another thread I think that's worth exploring in this whole notion of how do we help the pra- help the practice open up for people. You know, we've talked about um, having more realistic expectations of what the practice is, you know, that it's accommodating all our experience, whatever that might be. We've talked about exploring different vocabularies, different languages. Um, the other one that I think is helpful is understanding, like, what are we getting out of meditation? And I think in my experience, there's a couple of things that are worth noting here. You know, one thing that happens when we meditate is we begin to settle and we begin to settle into, which I think is such a key point. We begin to settle into whatever's happening for us, which is to me revolutionary. So we're not settled, getting rid of, like I said, let's say we're frustrated or angry. I'll come back. That's a useful example. We're angry. We're not getting rid of our anger. We're not necessarily changing our anger, but we're beginning to settle into our anger and touch a fundamental sense of ease and well-being within that experience. And what's the value of that? Well, it's a relief for one thing. That's helpful. The other thing, as you just noted, you know, that act of settling opens up some space within us. And the value of that is it allows us a different perspective on the experience of anger, and it allows a little bit of room for personal agency and choice. So for instance, and I've used this example a lot, and it's actually not my experience, it's a student who I was talking to, so credit to him. You know, he was talking about the benefits of meditation, and he said, you know, when I'm driving and someone cuts me off and I get really angry and I want to shake my fist at them, what meditation does is it has introduced a little space, a little bit of room in my state of being so that I can see the anger come up and choose not to shake my fist at that person. And I think that's utter, uh, an utterly beautiful and powerful ordinary um, example or articulation of one of the benefits of meditation. We settle. When we settle, we touch, we settle into what's going on to us, for us. We touch this self-existent sense of okayness, of wellness, of ease, and that brings space into our life. 
And that space allows us to actually see what's happening for us, see our reactivity, our impulsivity, and sometimes choose to do something different. So that's one big benefit of the practice. The other big benefit is as we settle, the more that we settle, we begin, and now we're coming right back to the beginning of our conversation, we begin to access an inner knowing. We begin to access our inner wisdom, what the Buddhist tradition calls Buddha nature or basic nature. We begin to access this inner knowing that is directly relevant to what's going on in our life right now, that actually has something to say about what's going on in our life right now and what our next step might be. So, you know, you go to a local bookstore, and I'm thinking of a local bookstore that's, you know, about a 15-minute walk away from here, and you go to the self-help shelf, and there are, you know, rows after rows after rows of, you know, how to find your path in life. And that's great. That's a hugely beneficial resource. And yet the path exists right here, right now. All we need to do is settle in and wait and allow it an opportunity to show itself to us. And that's, the, to me, the second main benefit of meditation is we begin to touch into that pathfinding quality, that inner sense of knowing or intelligence or wisdom or guidance or however we want to articulate it. And I'm I'm curious about your take on this because this that would just say is so powerful. If if the path is right within our reach, we have to go nowhere. Uh, to to even I mean we, we if we're lucky we can afford a meditation teacher like you. It's very important. I believe that you have a coach, a teacher, somebody that helps you. But let's assume you don't. It's right there. You don't need to pay anything to try to access that. Yeah. Why do you think we shy away so much of reaching inwards? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons. One reason is that we exist in a cultural context that is so fast. And the kind of thing we're talking about, turning inward and connecting, settling into our experience and waiting for um, our innate wisdom, our embodied wisdom to arise, that doesn't necessarily happen quickly. It requires time. And so we're very much running against the stream in that regard. And I think the effect of that should not be underestimated. I think that's a very significant context that we find ourselves in, important to acknowledge. Um, The other thing that I think is challenging, honestly, thinking about my own experience, is inner guidance doesn't necessarily align with what we want or what we think we're going to be doing in our life. This is not, I mean, again, going back to the beginning, I didn't really have a clear idea of what I'd be doing at this phase of my life. I can guarantee you, I certainly didn't envision this. And one of the struggles, um, one of the challenges for me in getting here is working, acknowledging and working with that resistance. You know, I don't want to go online and talk to people. I don't want to buy a webcam so that people can see me more clearly. I don't want to start a podcast. I don't want, you know, I don't want to be on social media, all that kind of thing. There's been a lot of dissonance, I guess you could say, on in my experience in trying to live in this way that arises from the fact that inner guidance doesn't really or doesn't all that often align with outer wants, outer ideas outer designs, 
a lot of people will talk about, you know, it, it's a path of surrender, and I can understand where they're coming from that with that. There is a certain element of um, surrender that's required, and that's really difficult. I mean, quite frankly, it's, it's scary at times. And so we live in this context that doesn't support, encourage, provide many opportunities to slow down, that insists upon speed. That's one challenge. And then the second challenge is that inner guidance and um, outer ideas are rarely aligned. Mm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great point. And, and, and sometimes even our own limited beliefs, like play against us, like if we say you're, I'm not good at this, but your natural talent actually is there. Yeah. You are good, but you either were told or you convince yourself you're not good at this then your inner uh, guidance is trying to take you to a place where you do have to remove those limiting beliefs. Otherwise, it's just consistent, you know, going back again, again, against the same wall, and it's painful. Yeah, it's very painful. That's very true. Yeah. And so, so Neil, I know one of the things you're big on, you, you yourself call a recovery survivor, a mental recovery survivor. Yes. Can you share a little bit about that? Because I know that a lot of people, you know, look for mentors, have mentors. So what, what was your experience and, and what did you learn from Well, it? it's really interesting. I mean, we, we started talking about inner guidance and here we've come back to it a couple of times and here we are coming back to it again because that's central to this experience. So we talked about I'm a meditation teacher, I'm a meditation mentor. I'm also, of course, a meditation student. And I talked about my initial experience as a teenager and a competitive swimmer. And about 30 years ago, I actually started to train more formally. And I worked with a series of two successive communities, both of which were rooted in Tibetan Buddhism, and both of which gave me opportunities to engage formal curriculum, do long retreats, some formal training. About 2016, my relationship with the second of these communities started to unwind. I started to feel uncomfortable with the way the leader was treating his students, especially close, long-standing students like myself. And I went through a couple of years of struggle around that as that discomfort intensified. And it became apparent to me that what was driving that community wasn't the teachings and the practice, and it wasn't the well-being and development of the students. It was really the impulses of a leader. And the extents he was willing to go to assert these created, in my mind, an environment that was characterized by manipulation and disempowerment and disrespect. And, you know, to give one example, he was very adept at what I call the bait and switch, promising one thing and then pulling it away and saying, well, no, we're going to do this and expecting us to silently go along, which just sounds like, well, you know, he's not very good at keeping agreements. But when this dynamic repeats over a period of years and plans and schedules and lives are upended by an authority figure one trusts, who seems to have little concern for the consequences of this, it, it's really crazy making. More specifically, what happened in my case is it really begins to undermine and distort my, it undermined and distorted my relationship with my own inner wisdom, my own inner guidance of this is happening and this is appropriate and this is not appropriate, just felt like it was being undermined over and over and over and over again. And it got to a certain point where my mental and physical capacity was so challenged that I had to leave. And in February 2020, I did. And it was a difficult choice, but it was a necessary choice. 
And it opened up this path of recovery and healing and exploration and discovery that continues to this day. And what's the core of that path? Well, the core of that path, I think, is revealed by kind of the two main elements. I mean, one element of this path is meditation. For whatever reason, I turned to what was familiar after February 2020, and I meditated. And I started to settle into what was happening for me, settle into how lost I was. Out of this came as an experience of insight that shocked me in how directly relevant it was to what was going on in my life. And it suggested that there was this phase of meditation I'd never considered before, where I actually follow that revelation. I follow that guidance into my life, which I started doing because I didn't know what else to do. I was so lost. So if I was tired, I rested. If I felt stuck, I sought out trauma therapy and so on and so forth. So, and then the second thread that was important here is I did a lot of this meditating in community. And with the end of that difficult relationship and the appearance of COVID, all my teaching activity stopped. And so I started offering something online, which has now become the online gatherings community. And in doing so, I got to see the brilliant and articulate, the vulnerable and adaptive ways people were meeting not only the challenges of meditation, but the challenges of, the, of their lives. And so, here I am, much to my surprise, finding myself getting through that loss, not getting over, but getting through with meditation beginning to heal my relationship with my own inner wisdom and with the community that I was part of affirming and modeling the existence of this inner wisdom over and over and over again. What I discovered in this is that I am and we are far more resourced than I had ever imagined. There is this wellspring of intelligence and guidance that's waiting for us. And then I started to find a sense of direction and purpose in my life and work that I hadn't sensed before, that I hadn't had clarity on before, which is, you know, the work that I'm now doing. Beautiful. I think, yeah, it's a good reminder of what they say. It sounds cheesy, but to, that you have to get lost to be found. A lot of, you know, you read this all over and over. It sounds almost cheesy, but it's true. In all the good experiences, like evolutionary growth, you have to have that moment where you just, as you very well said, you surrender to what yeah. is. And you just said, I don't know where this is going. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know nothing. I just know that I don't know. And uh, and so, and that abandonment really has creation, creative power. Very much so. There's a, a Buddhist teacher, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase him very poorly, but there's a Buddhist teacher by the name of John Tarrant. He's a, he's a Zen, um, he's got a Zen background. And he has talked about how not knowing is a very appropriate and creative way for us to move through our life. And for years I read, you know, whatever that passage was, and I felt mystified, you know, what's he talking about? And now it's like, oh my gosh, yes, because I can see how, you know, in the utter devastation of the last two and a half, three, four years for me, there's been a lot of not knowing, and that not knowing is what's allowed purpose and connection and direction to arise. Without that not knowing, I'm convinced it wouldn't have happened. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really powerful right there. So um, I always 
provide an, an open space, open microphone? I know you have your own podcast. Is there anything that is exciting you that you're working on that you want to highlight or just if you want to share what's making you tick? Well, I think, you know, the thing that's exciting me is this broad sense of purpose I've mentioned, and I've not articulated it. So I'm going to say a few words about that now that you've offered that space. Sure, absolutely. You know, basically what I'm now doing is I'm, I'm, I'm bringing together meditators who sense or believe, meditators with all levels of experience and all backgrounds, who sense and believe and, and hope that meditation can connect us with something worthwhile. More specifically, meditation can connect us with the wisdom, the knowing that's inherent in our person, in our communities, our relationships, in our lives. And we come together in order to develop a very practical understanding of the teachings and practices of meditation. That um, grocery store, kitchen sink understanding that I spoke to a few minutes ago. And we do this so that we can encourage and empower, so that we can inspire and support one another as we become more familiar with that inner wisdom and that inner knowing, and as we begin to trust the necessarily unique ways that it expresses in our paths and in our world. And, you know, the main manifestation of this, as I mentioned, is that community called the Online Gatherings. But there, the podcast is part of this. The writings I do are part of this, et cetera, et cetera. It's all about us really coming to the thread that's wound its way through this whole wonderful conversation. It's really about developing more familiarity with how resourced we are, a stronger sense of familiarity with our inner resourcedness. And uh, an ability to trust and follow this in our lives, with meditation being the tool that supports us, the main tool that supports us in doing this, not the only tool, but the main tool. Oh, that's uh, really great work you're doing. Congratulations on that. Of course, your webpage, which I believe is neilmckinley.com. It is. Okay, it's going to be on the show notes, but I really invite and suggest people to check it out. And I think creating online communities where you can feel safe and you can just, because it happens to me, I have friends that are some of my best friends from my entire life, but they are not into this. And when I talk about some of this stuff, they uh, look at me a little strange. I don't. I know they don't judge me. They love me, but I cannot connect. Like I wanted to say, I want to share things that I know they don't resonate. And then you go into these communities with people that are like-minded, that are into the same things, and you feel so embraced, you feel so safe just to really share what is that you're going through. And, and that's really a game changer, I believe, to find the right community to, to share. I really think so. And I think that sharing is really important because, of course, as we share, I think at least a couple things happen. One is the people that we're sharing with have an opportunity to go, wow, this person's amazing. And we have an opportunity to actually feel that. We have an opportunity to begin to sense. Because, you know, I mean, Letitia, it's all well and good to say we have inner wisdom, but then create a situation like I was in where that inner wisdom is constantly undermined. So we need these contexts that actually encourage and empower that relationship, that actually say to us, wow. That's amazing. So we can begin to develop a bit of confidence. And then, yeah, we can deal with the things that obscure and distort and diminish this in our life. But first and foremost, we have the confidence, the, the sense of grounding of that communal wowness that we give others and that others give us. 
Mm. Well, I really, really think that uh, anybody listening to this will be more curious, more inspired to give a meditation a try or another try if if you have tried it before. And uh, definitely check Neil's page. And I really thank you for your time and for sharing all this wisdom and putting this out there because that's how we kind of create ripples, I believe. I think that is exactly how we create ripples. And so thank you for this wonderful pond to dip into for 30, 40 minutes here together. Thank you, Neil. Thank you. And I wish everybody a great rest of the day. And thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Back to Basics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. If you haven't yet, subscribe Rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming platforms. This is the best gift you can give us. Join me next week for another Back to Basics conversation. And if you want to find out about other exciting things I'm working on, visit LeticiaLatino.com. Thank you and until the next time.